Feels a little right. bit closer. <laughs> um, <clears throat> following Jesus can be hard, can't it? I mean, there, there are lots of aspects of choosing to follow Jesus that you just, it's tough. Um, there's the whole thing of, of killing off sin, of choosing to live by the Spirit and, and not to just do whatever your desires lead you. Um, that's tough. Telling others about Jesus can be pretty hard. It can be hard to talk to your family, let alone your friends, um, about Jesus. But one of the hardest commands, I reckon, of Jesus is to turn the other cheek. I didn't get my um, phone set up, guys, so just for the first bit, can we just throw that, that first slide up on the screen? The Bible passage, that's the one. Here's what we just read. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Hey, this is not just accepting that bad things happen to you. This is actively choosing to be worse off, to suffer. So if someone nicks a plant from the front garden at your place, you go looking for them so you can offer them the pot to put the plant in. Uh, you, you, uh, someone trips on your driveway and they decide to sue you. And so you choose to settle in advance, and you don't just choose to settle, you offer them more money than they were asking. That's the sort of logic Jesus has got going here. Why would you live like this? Why would you choose to suffer? Well, the reason given by the early church, the leaders in the early church said, you do it because Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered in just this sort of way. Um, here's one example. Uh, Romans 8, verse 17. Uh, writing to some Roman Christians, Paul writes, that being brothers and sisters of Jesus means sharing his sufferings. So now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Or when, Jesus, when Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, um, he said suffering like Jesus was simply his goal. Uh, I want to know Christ, yet, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So if we want to make sense of Christian suffering, we actually need to make sense of Jesus' suffering. And where do you go to understand Jesus' suffering? Well, the place Jesus went was the Old Testament. So you have this really important moment, Luke 24. Um, sorry, I've got the wrong reading up. It should be Luke 24, is that there? Um, Luke 24, verse 25, if I forgot to put it in, here, have a listen. Uh, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, the Christ, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus says that it was the prophets, and by the prophets he means uh, all the books from um, Judges right through to um, Malachi, or, or the, they call it the former prophets and the latter prophets. You go there to understand Jesus' sufferings. And so what we've been doing in these last weeks is we've been seeing and learning how and why the Christ suffers. Because that's really the storyline that we've been seeing develop, isn't it? David is the Christ. He is the anointed king chosen by God. He's defeated Goliath and yet he's suffering because Saul doesn't want to let him be king. He's out in the desert wandering around under persecution, being chased. Why is that? Why is this necessary for David's preparation to be king? I think we actually find out today. 
This section of 1 Samuel, I think, explains to us that the Christ mustn't use his power for himself, and so he suffers. It's because of the nature of God's king, his authority is only to be used to defend others, not to defend himself, and so the Christ will suffer. So let me show you three things. I'm going to show you that all authority comes from God as far as what David learns, but that bad authority serves itself, good authority serves God and others. That's what we're seeing play out in these chapters. How about I pray and we can get in looking at these passages. Heavenly Father, please help us to understand suffering um, from these passages. We pray that we'd understand why Jesus had to suffer and that in understanding his sufferings, um, we will better be equipped to suffer for him, to suffer for doing what is right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, we, we need to appreciate that all authority comes from God. Um, every ruler is appointed by God, and that actually includes Saul, is what we see here. So start of chapter 24. If you've got your Bible, have it open. Uh, we are reminded that Saul is still king, and he's still out to get David. Chapter 24 and verse 1 of 1 Samuel. Uh, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Saul is king. In comparison, David is weak. He's hiding in a cave. Um, and yet, uh, it just so happens that Saul goes to the toilet inside that cave. Talk about providence. Talk about God sort of just setting up the situation. As far as the, the David's men read, that's exactly what God has done. Verse 4, David's men said, This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But then David stops. And he realizes he's actually done the wrong thing. Because God appointed Saul it's not David's place to end his kingship I, I just need to stop and point out there's a sort of interesting lesson going on here about how God leads us I know lots of people feel that if the circumstances is right that, that maybe that's God's communicating that this is the situation and yet here's David he's sitting in this cave everything seems to be perfect but he doesn't let God's explicit message override, be overridden by circumstance. He knows that God appointed Saul to be king. He's not going to take things into his hand. Even though he's got the promise that one day he will be king, he's not going to take things in his hand and just let circumstance dictate that God must want this to happen. He's going to let God keep his word to Saul as well as to David. So, and so David repents. He's very sorry he harmed Saul in verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And so David lets Saul go. It's just a really strange attitude to authority that David has here. On one hand, Saul is his enemy. Saul is out to get him. And yet David honours Saul's kingship. He recognises that he is God-appointed. And while there is something unique about Saul being appointed as the Christ, it turns out that this is a common pattern for Christians. 
followers of Jesus do this. Uh, even when we're hated by the people who are in charge, even when government authorities are treated as enemies of the state, we still honour all authority as from God. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And it's, it's there in the early church. Christians are willing to speak out against illegitimate authority. When, when, when governments do the wrong thing, they don't stay silent. David spoke out against Saul, didn't he? He, he pointed out to Saul, why are you chasing me? This is wrong. But Christians also have a long history of praying for their persecutors. It's right back in the earliest church. There's this guy in the second century. His name's Tertullian. He's a Christian leader. And the Romans are persecuting Christians. Here's what he says in his defense. He, the emperor, gets his scepter where he got, first got his humanity, his power where he got the breath of life. Without ceasing, for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged for security to the empire, for protection to the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever, as man or Caesar, an emperor would wish. They pray for the emperor and for a good government. And yet, Tertullian has this amazing picture. This is while they're being persecuted. He says, With our hands thus stretched out to God, rend us with your iron claws, Hang us up on crosses, wrap us in flames, take our heads from us with the sword, let loose the wild beasts on us. The very attitude of a Christian praying is one of preparation for all punishment. It's just a strange perspective, but it's, it's understanding this world is under God's command. All authority is given by God. And so sometimes that means suffering. But, but it comes down to how we're going to use our authority. That's David's decision. And he, and he learns in these next chapter, chapters that bad authority serves itself. Good authority serves God and others. This is the big distinction. This is where David's got to learn the lesson well. So first of all, chapter 25, um, it's, it's a bit of a strange chapter. We jump out of the whole situation with Saul and suddenly we're dealing with this, this uh, farming family, Nabal and his wife, Abigail. It turns out that their, protect, their herders, their, their shepherds, were out and looking after the sheep. And during a period of time, David's men protected them. And so later on, when Nabal's reaping the benefits, um, shearing the sheep, David feels, look, he deserves a share. Have a listen to David's own words in verse 7. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive, at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Pretty humble request. But Nabal doesn't just say no, he insults David, calls him a runaway slave. Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? 
David's been insulted. He has the power to do something about it, and so he prepares his men to attack. But when just then Nabal's wife Abigail hears and she steps in, and it's, it's all in the nick of time. Listen from verse 18. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on the donkeys. And then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine and there were David and his men descending toward her. And she met them. And David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Now I feel the ambiguity, like Nabal hadn't agreed to pay David, but it does seem that Abigail thinks he deserves this pay, that it's appropriate for what he's done. But what she does when she speaks to David is she actually gives him a piece of wisdom far bigger, far more important for him to understand about his kingship. See, she tells David he has power, he has authority, but he mustn't use it to serve himself. Listen to verse 26. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands... May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. So he's not to take a vengeance for himself. Instead, he's to use his power to serve others, to, to serve God, to fight God's battles. Verse 28. Please, Abigail keeps going, forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. See, good authority serves God. Bad authority, it serves itself. And I reckon we know that experience of bad authority, don't we? Every time a a king uses his power selfishly, every time a politician lines his own pockets, every time a president acts in self-interest rather than the interest of her people, that's authority abused. And it's not just politicians. Uh, You can be a parent who punishes to make life easier rather than to train and build up your kids, can't you? Uh, You can be a teacher who doesn't care about learning and just wants you to progress your career. You can be a builder who cuts corners because he's just there for the pay and he doesn't actually care about building a safe home. Bad authority, abused power, it's everywhere. And we hate when we're under it. But we don't always meet that same standard. We're prone to make the same mistake. When it comes to how we use authority, are we consistently acting for other people or do every now and again we get tempted to just make my own life easier, to vindicate myself and prove that I've got what it takes? It's a very high standard that God sets. Bad authority serves itself, but good authority... It's righteous and faithful. Good authority is righteous and faithful. Uh, that's chapter 26. And chapter 26, it feels a bit like deja vu. Like in chapter 24, Saul is pursuing David. Like in chapter 24, David has a chance to kill Saul. Like in chapter 24, David refuses to harm God's anointed king. There's a lot of parallels. But there is this big difference. 
because this time David isn't running. He's not hiding in the cave. He, he goes looking for Saul. And, and he doesn't just, Saul doesn't stumble into David's hand. David walks into Saul's camp. And verse 22, when Abishai urges David to kill Saul, David immediately refuses to do it. There's just no hesitation. There's no dilly-dallying. David has learned what it takes to be a good king. He's not there to take his vengeance. He's there to be righteous and faithful. Listen to what he says in verse 22 to Saul. Here is the king's spear, David answers. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I'm righteous. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. He's faithful. He's trusting God to vindicate him. This is what it means to be the Christ. This is what good authority looks like. Not fighting for your rights, choosing to suffer and trusting God to vindicate you. Uh, you might not be surprised to find this, but uh, when I was young, I was actually quite hard to get angry. I was pretty placid, um, easygoing. Um, in fact, I had one friend who, uh, he made it his goal one year just to try and get me angry. He, he just couldn't believe how tolerant I'd be. So, particularly at Phys Ed, you know, we'd be getting the, the nets into the pool, and so he'd make sure he was on the end where he could push me into the pool as we were trying to put the polo nets in. Or um, we were doing the laps on the oval, and he'd be there behind me, ankle tapping all the way around, so I couldn't quite run normally. And, and he just kept pushing. I mean, he was a friend. He was a bit of an odd friend, but he was a friend. And the problem was he, just, he pushed and pushed, and one day in mass, I just lost it. And I just started laying into him and I just started yelling and the teacher turned around, Russell, what? That's not the behaviour of a, of a prefect. Um, I'm not very good at seeking my own justice. The more unjust the situation, the more aggravated I am, the less wisely I can see the situation. So what God's standard is here, it, it, it's really right that the right king doesn't ever fight for himself. He writes for justice, fights for justice for others. And so that's what David takes on. And, and remember, the message of 1 Samuel is that God does see. Hannah herself said it, didn't she? In her prayer, she said, God is a God who knows. God does deliver justice. We see it in chapter 25, because at the end, Nabal drops dead. Not by David's hand by God's. We see at the end of 1 Samuel where Saul is killed on the battlefield, not at David's hand. God brings justice. We can trust him to do that, but it does mean suffering while we wait. And that's actually the pattern we see in Jesus, isn't it? This is what the whole book is preparing us for, to see why Jesus is the right king to follow. Because Jesus recognised all authority was from God, didn't he? He was willing to submit to the Jewish leaders. Remember that whole episode where he's asked to pay the temple tax and so Peter goes down and goes fishing to bring back the coin to pay for both Peter and him. Because even though he's the son of the king and doesn't have to pay the tax, he will. There's the whole situation where he's, he's arrested by the Romans and he's taken off 
arrested by the Jews, taken off to the Romans, and, and he submits to it all. And, and all the time, he's not willing to use his authority to serve himself. So he has power to drive out demons, but he doesn't lay a hand on the Pharisees. He, he has large crowds calling him king, but he won't even let Peter pull out a sword and defend him when he's arrested. He can command an angel army to come and rescue him. And yet he chooses not to. Instead, he chooses to suffer, to do good and trust God to give him justice. And so you get to the cross and he saved others, but he doesn't save himself. The Jewish leaders hurl abuse. He's there praying, Father, forgive them. He gives his life so that his enemies can have eternal life. Friends, I hope you see Jesus is a very good king. If you wanted to choose someone to trust in and follow, he is the king worth trusting. Maybe you feel that you've had time and again that you've worked against God, you've rebelled against him, but you haven't listened to what he said. Can you see that he will not take vengeance? No matter how slow you are to obey him, so no matter how stubborn your heart might be, he is a good king. Trust Jesus. But also it's worth seeing how this plays out in how we follow Jesus, what it means for us to do what's righteous and faithful. So there's everything that Jesus taught about offering your cloak when people do wrong to you. But I want to go further. We had our, our night on religious freedom last weekend and one of the points Alex made was that Western freedoms, our whole concept of religious freedom, it's built on Christian morals. It is, it is this way of looking at authority that makes it possible, that, that led us to, to have a, a legal system where the people in power chose to make space for minority religions. It's that sort of thinking that is not out to protect itself but will serve others, that, that's convinced that you can't force people to trust in God, that they're going to have to be changed by God and brought to him. And I think it also needs to inform us as we then advocate for religious freedoms, doesn't it? Because... You can't force people to follow Jesus. Uh, if they throw all insults, we need to turn the other cheek. If, if we feel that they're playing dirty politics, we should never go there. We would rather do, be wrong than do wrong. We'll speak the truth. We might be silent. We'll call out bad authority. But we will never take justice into our own hands. We will trust God to bring justice that's what it means to choose to suffer whether we're debating the law publicly or we live for Jesus privately we, we need to learn the lesson that David learned in 1 Samuel we don't hate our opponents we need to pray for them we need to speak kindly and do good for them because Jesus chose to do good the Christ chose to suffer and he calls us to do the same let's pray Heavenly Father, please keep teaching us what it is to follow Jesus the Christ, how he uses his authority and his power differently to us, but how good and wise it is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, we might go straight to the Lord's Supper now. We're going to take that opportunity to remember 